Hello, hello, and welcome to Football Outsiders is the takeaway. My name is Kale Clinton. With me is Jackson. After a brief hiatus, we are back, rounded up and breaking down all the hottest takes around the NFL media landscape, Jackson. Boy, it's good to be back. I kind of think the time off has let these things kind of stew. Not only has it given us more data to go off of and snaps to take in, but we've really allowed the cream to rise to the top of the take landscape. We're getting the best of the best coming in. I can't wait to break it down with you. Oh, this is this is the super takeaway this week. This is an accumulation of all the best things we've heard over the past three weeks. Crazy stuff. You see this stuff, you're like, when's the next takeaway so we can get into it? And it's finally arrived, so let's not delay any further. But before we get into it, Jackson, I'm as excited as you to break it down. But as always, we got to thank our friends over at Underdog Fantasy. Play Underdog Fantasy with us and double your first deposit up to $100 with promo code OUTSIDERS. Are your season-long fantasy teams floundering? Play Underdog's Battle Royale, a fast six-round weekly fantasy football draft with easier chances to win than traditional fantasy sports sites. You can even win $50,000 if you grab first place. Jackson, you can also try Pick'em Games, where you can easily pick players' chances to go over or under their projected stat lines, even in states where traditional prop betting currently isn't available. Underdog is the fastest-growing fantasy site around, and you can join the fun over at underdogfantasy.com or download the Underdog app in the App Store. And if you use promo code OUTSIDERS now, you can double your first deposit up to $100. Jackson's Underdog Pick of the Day, DK Metcalf. No stats, just a gut feeling. Like where your head's at. As always, you got to get in to the remnants, the aftermath of Thursday night's action. A flag fest over on Amazon Prime with the Carolina Panthers jumping out over the Atlanta Falcons 25-15. Now, the takeaway itself doesn't directly come from the game but comes in a conversation that happened prior on the Move the Sticks podcast with Daniel Jeremiah and Bucky Brooks. Daniel Jeremiah gives a good analogy talking about, have you ever heard of the HTV, HGTV show Good Bones, Jackson? Maybe in passing. Maybe on a TV guide once. As Jeremiah describes it, it's a bit of a fixer-upper show looking into more rundown houses to see which can be reclaimed because, you know, they got good bones. And in the words of Daniel Jeremiah Jackson, the Carolina Panthers have good bones. Now, they fired Matt Rule. They've got a question mark at quarterback. But Jeremiah points out, and by the way, we're not playing the clip because it's about half a podcast long. But Jeremiah really hammered on a strong young core for this Panthers team. Left tackle Ikemaquano, he had in the top 25 rookies of the 2022 season. Gave rave reviews about DJ Moore. 
Bucky Brooks specifically said that the biggest impact from the youth movement comes on the defensive side of the ball between guys like Brian Burns, who the Rams tried to give two first-rounders for, and the Panthers said no way. Derek Brown is also on that defensive line in that secondary. You got J.C. Horn and Jeremy Chen, who's currently on IR, but what we've seen from him on film has been pretty impressive, in their eyes at least. Jackson, put it on the scale. The Carolina Panthers have good bones to build on going forward. Lukewarm. It's not going out on much of a limb. It's kind of just saying there's not much there, but what's there has some structure to it. But I agree. I, I don't think they should have traded DJ Moore and Brian Burns. I, if you just empty the cupboard, you know, what's what's attracting people to come to your team? What's what's there to build on? You, you can't just bring young guys into the building with nothing around them. There has to be... Not only some veteran presence, whether that's three years of experience or 10, but there's got to be, you know, existing talent, guys who are leading by example. And I like that they have kind of one on both sides of the ball, like one star, not superstar. Uh, I think Brian Burns brings more to the defense than DJ Moore does to an offense, but both very good, well above average players at their respective positions. When you have high draft picks, when you have... Lots of infusion, young talent coming into the building. You need guys to already be there in order to build around them. I'm going to put it a little hotter on the scale because I think it's just public perception around the Carolina Panthers. And I get they're a bad team this year that has very much overperformed their expectations thus far with, you know, the win against Tampa Bay, the emergence of a guy like P.J. Walker, who, mind you, not going to be the starter going forward, at least into the like he actually just announced as the starter for next week in Carolina. I'm more referring to next year in Carolina. I personally don't think the quarterback who's going to start for him is in the building. Uh, I think it's wild because they're one of the only teams where you can name four quarterbacks who are in the building. Exactly. Uh, but it yeah, it's a good structure. DJ Moore, even finding a guy, like, the ability to find a guy like Deontay Foreman, I get you don't hit on a guy like Chuba Hubbard, who, in his first couple years in Carolina, has not panned out as the RB2 slash rising RB1 you'd thought he might be. But a pickup off the street like Deontay Foreman at least shows good process, at least shows an ability to scout and an ability to identify talent off the street. And yeah, every guy that they name, you know, especially a Brian Burns, a J.C. Horn, a D.J. Moore, stud, especially Brian Burns. Brian Burns is encroaching into that, like, there's, there's a reason you turn down draft picks for a guy like Brian Burns, because known quantities are better than lottery tickets. Obviously. So having that in-house already, you don't need to, risk making that decision again yeah Worrying and i think there's that. other positions you can you can make that argument for too i mean the wide receiver cupboard was looking pretty bare for a while there but all of a sudden terrace marshall not necessarily living up to the second round billing but he can be a wide receiver three if they bring someone else in and lavisca chenault 
biggest play of the game last night. I mean, granted, he still has butter attached to both hands at all times, but can be a gadget guy in the right offensive system. I feel like they're one receiver away now, which I wouldn't have said at the start of the year. Now, Jackson, they did have a bit of a secondary take in there, which they were split on. So I feel like presenting it to you. Okay. Who has the better setup going forward? Carolina or the Houston Texans? Now, like we just said, Carolina, Ooh. a lot of good bones. Doesn't have as big of a draft cupboard going forward. But they also don't have to pay a lot of bodies coming in. They're not necessarily cap hamstrung, especially getting McCaffrey off the books now. Houston has some weaker bones, hasn't been drinking their milk as much. They still got guys like Damian Pierce, Nico Collins, Brandon Cooks, if they can work it out, Laramie Tunsil on the defensive end, especially in the secondary, guys like Derek Stingley, even Jalen Petre in there. But they've got five picks in the first three rounds of 2023, including two first-rounders, and they've got two first-rounders next year. So those cupboards can be replenished pretty quickly. Yeah, far be it from me to uh, to discount the value of first-round picks, but they only matter if you use them on the right guys, right? I think I would rather have, not that Carolina, I mean, we've talked about how it is, bones, not a full body with both teams. I think Carolina's got more bones. Um, I would rather, I mean, both of these teams don't have a quarterback, so that's a wash right there. In any situation, I'm going to lean towards the team with the quarterback. I think they've both, like, I don't know what Davis Mills is doing right now. Like, he's just, he's a warm body. He's the result of the unfortunate Deshaun Watson situation. But, like, the answer is just whichever of these two teams gets a quarterback first. The rest is going to work itself out. They're both going to have high draft picks. Carolina winning this game ironically hurts their draft pick. Uh, so maybe Houston gets the edge in that sense. But we can debate, you know, the J.C. Horns versus the Derek Stingleys of the world all day. It's really just going to come down to who gets the quarterback first. And Houston will probably have their pick of the litter. You know, they're the one one-win team in this league right now. So they're winning the pick to uh they're winning the race to pick number 1. I've got to still go Carolina in this case just because I have so much hesitation around the process in Houston, the rest of the front office. I don't know if Steve Wilkes will take over as full-time head coach. Does, it looks like the Houston Texans will also be in the new head coaching market come 2023. But at the very least, I trust Carolina's scouting department just a little bit more. I hope they keep still Steve Wilkes around because he's been at least a good motivator, getting these guys up for a game against division rival Tampa Bay, even when Tampa Bay was on the downswing. Beating Tom Brady in his Dominant a fashion as they did is very impressive. And the aggressiveness with which they've got PJ Walker in cover two hole shots. I like what they got going right now. I, I like their energy. I like their process. I like their ability to find guys off the street. And I just trust the overall infrastructure more than I trust the Houston Texans. I do feel somewhat like one and a half good games of PJ Walker has addled your brain a little bit because I've watched him the last two weeks and it's been the furthest. It was thing good. I'll be the first to say it. 
Yeah, the last the last two games have been the least aggressive quarterbacking you could possibly imagine. But rain game, I get it. Um, I, I do think it comes down to the quarterback position. But if you're just going to ask me who's got more right now, regardless of the first rounders moving forward, I'm going to side with Carolina as well. Well, that'll take us right in to the bulk of our show, the headlines. And Jackson, this is the one where we were on break for a bit and we were texting back and forth about it on the side. Twitter was ablaze, more so than it is currently, uh, just in its general day-to-day operation. But football Twitter was ablaze when Emmanuel Acho walked into the center of the town square and pronounced that Justin Herbert might win a beauty pageant, but Tua Tagovailoa is the better quarterback, period. Let's hear it from the man himself. Yo, it's time to quiet down all this Twitter talk. Tua Tagovailoa is better than Justin Herbert. Simple. Tua has 17 wins and 9 losses in his career. Justin Herbert, 19 wins and 20 losses. He's a losing quarterback. Tua has 2 less wins than Justin Herbert in 13 less games. Tua has a 6 passing touchdown game. Justin Herbert, he ain't never done that. Tua has a 400-yard game. Justin Herbert, he ain't never thrown for 400 yards. Justin Herbert has more games with a pick 6 than he has games with 4 passing touchdowns. Tua is 4-0 versus Bill Belichick. No quarterback has started their career 4 wins with no losses versus Belichick. Besides John Elway, Justin Herbert, 0-2 versus Bill Belichick, the greatest defensive mind in football. See, two is a winner, 65% winning percentage. Justin Herbert, 48% winning percentage. Y'all stop talking to me, man. Give me Tua. Now. Jackson. Now, should note, numbers got to update a bit. Tua is 19-9 and since this video came out. Justin Herbert is 20-20. and Fact remains, Tua, better win percentage. Tua's got a six-passing TD game and a 400-passing yard game. Tua 4-0 against Bill Belichick to Justin Herbert's 0-2. Herbert has more games with a pick six than he does for touchdown passes. Jackson, put it on the meter. First of all, at the time... Which, when, when this take was made, it was going to break our take meter. And in the and I will still fully give it credit for going all the way up to the, the high end of scorching. Just period bar none. He is what the show is all about. He's coming in with the fire. Now, I will say, Tua Tagovailoa, if you look at most metrics this season, looks like the best quarterback in football. It all has to be taken in context. I feel like the hypothetical that's been going around football Twitter ever since this question was posed that mostly applies to the MVP discussion but can be applied here as well is if you had to choose between the quarterback and the supporting cast and supporting cast including coaching staff, Miami Dolphins, which one would you take? You take the supporting cast. It's just indisputable. Tyreek's the offensive player of the year. Mike McDaniel, one of the hottest new head coaches in the league. Meanwhile, you've got Justin Herbert out west. All his receivers can't stay on the field. He probably has some sort of rib damage still that he's playing with. His head coach can't get out of his own way. His defense was supposed to be largely improved going into this year and instead has regressed. It's just, you have to take all this stuff into context. And the stats he points out are like winning percentage, anecdotal winning percentage, 
and single game stats. Like there's no body of work there. And the interesting thing is you could have just gone this year body of work stats and made a very coherent argument for Chua, but it's a very mishmash list of stats that just don't prove anything. So to, to conclude it all, it's a, it's a scorching hot take for sure. Now, I think it's cooled down a little. I'm going to put it hot. I'm not going to put it scorching. I think time has allowed it to kind of mellow out uh, just because Tua's looks fantastic. I, I think there are still some major general concerns with underperformance within the Los Angeles Chargers organization this season uh, just as, you know, they haven't lived up to the league-wide expectations. That being said, this is an incorrect take. I'm going to rattle you through. First off, I do want to know. I want to take. I want to take pick sixes as a stat, uh, and just and just talk about that for a second. Uh, Acho did a, a separate video about Herbert earlier uh, in the year, calling Herbert a uh, a turnover waiting to happen. Uh, Justin Herbert doesn't have the games to qualify for interception rate among active quarterbacks on Pro Football Reference's list, but his 1.9 interception percentage or interception rate would be seventh lowest among active quarterbacks. Uh, His four pick sixes are tied for 20th among active quarterbacks, including Kyler, Baker Mayfield, Nick Foles, it's he is historically very conservative with the ball and plays a very safe game. But let's get into it. 2020, Herbert finishes eighth in DYAR and eleventh in DVOA. Two at 26 in DYAR, 26 in DVOA. Herbert, fifth in DYAR and sixth in DVOA in 2021. Herbert also finishes a top five QB rusher by DVOA last year. Two last year. 18th DYAR, 18th DVOA. As you said, this year, Herbert just outside top 10 quarterback play, 11th in DYAR, 12th in DVOA. Tua leading the league in both this year, prolific quarterback. RBSDM does a nice little thing where it allows you to take more cumulative data set sizes, uh, combined seasons, if you will, since they got to the league in 2020. Herbert's 11th in the league in EPA per play. Two is 16. Herbert has a worse CPOE, completion percentage over expectation. But he's less than a percentage point behind Tua in actual completion percentage over that span. This doesn't even mention the fact that uh, that Herbert has attempted 400 more passes than Tua Tungabailoa. Averages 75 more passing yards per game. Gets more rushing yards per game and takes 0.2 more sacks per game despite dropping back 40% more often. He is being asked to do much, much more in his offense than Tua Tungabailoa is. And you know the one difference when you see a massive jump like that? The infrastructure around Tua has massively, massively changed. Yeah, it's not one difference. It's it's many getting differences. The, it's getting one of the best wide receivers in football, and then also getting maybe the best and most creative young offensive mind we've seen since 
17, 18 Sean McVay. He is, Mike McDaniel has been prolific in helping out Tua. And granted, Tua genuinely looks like an improved, different quarterback. But that doesn't dissuade the intangibles of the fact that Herbert's had, outside of 2021 Joe Lombardi, Lombardi's regressed a bit as a play caller this year. You talk about a lot of, I believe it's, uh, I forget the play call that consistently, I don't think it's stick, uh, going around Twitter a lot, but it's basically run out of one offensive set. This also precludes uh, Anthony Lynn as their, uh, it is Anthony Lynn, right? That was their 2020 head coach who loves calling third down screens to Austin Eckler on third and long and only use Mike Williams as a go-ball guy. Uh, Very one-dimensional offense to run Herbert in. Steven Ruiz from The Ringer explained it best when this argument was happening. Take the quarterback and swap situation. Who would be better? Turbert. If he's utilized more properly and has better weapons around him, and this isn't to knock Keenan Allen and Mike Williams, but those are also two injury-prone guys, and one of them's on the wrong side of 30 now, and has been dealing with a hamstring injury all season. So it's been a neutered offense, and he's still been a fringe top 10 quarterback this year. It's hands it's hands down Justin Herbert. Tua has drastically, drastically improved, but I would much rather have Justin Herbert on my team than Tua Tonga by Loa. Yeah, switch their situations, and it's no longer a conversation. Tua with that Miami offense would break the league. The arm talent Herbert is with that Miami thing. offense. Yeah, yeah. Herbert, Herbert, Herbert in the Miami, Miami offense, whatever. <laughs> you would you Tua in the Chargers offense, I, I think would be very mid. Uh, as the kids say, not terrible. Obviously, he's improved a lot, but very mid. Uh, and I think Herbert with uh, Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle just breaks the NFL as we know it right now. Not to mention the guy's been playing through a rib injury uh, this entire season and probably will take some sort of off-season work to get back to full health. So it's it's no longer really a conversation when you look through it of the lens of what's actually surrounding them. I'd also like to the Belichick stats hilarious to me. We got we got to get yeah, off of John Elway beating up on the '90s Browns. Yeah, that matters. The two are going four and zero against Belichick. Miami has a notorious time struggling against the New England Patriots, so I get it. But that being said, just what a way around Patriots. Patriots never win in Miami. That's what I mean. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yes, you're right. Uh, because that would prove my point if I said the other thing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like I still remember. I think it was like it, it was a shutout game with Herbert. Herbert notoriously does well against, uh, or Belichick notoriously does well against young quarterbacks, and just absolutely got the best of Herbert in his first year. It was one of uh, New England's more impressive wins with Cam Newton at the helm. Just a, just a weird stat to throw in there by Acha. Yeah, he's just looking for anything that fits his argument. That's that's all there really is to it. Sticking in the AFC East, Jackson, we've got to take from an actual coach. This isn't just a pundit. This is a figurehead in the league. We've got Robert Sala, Kale, 
He went on the Open Mic podcast on the volume, and he had some words about his quarterback that, I mean, every coach is going to defend his quarterback, but I think this goes above and beyond what a coach has to say about a quarterback who's produced to the levels that Zach Wilson has at this point in his career. So why don't you, why don't you roll the tape? I think anyone who doesn't acknowledge the fact that he is light years ahead of where he was a year ago um, isn't really watching football and not paying attention. And anyone who doesn't think he'll be light years from where he is now, uh, next year from where he is now, um, doesn't, you know, you don't have faith in him. We have faith that he's going to continue to get better. And, um, and we see signs of it in practice. We see signs of it in games. Unfortunately, you're judged by the mistakes you make. And kind of like a golfer, you're only as good as your, your, worst, your, your worst miss. And, um, but his, his misses are getting, they're getting tighter. And, uh, um, and he's doing everything he needs to do to make sure we're winning football games. And that's why he's, since he's been back, we've been five and one. Jackson. Light years ahead of where he was from last year. He's sticking his neck out there. Giving his guy credit. Put it on the meter, Jackson. Let's put it on the meter. I think, man, this is tough. I think it's going to be, I'm not going to go all the way to scorching because I think a coach defends his own quarterback, so I'll just stick it in hot. Uh, but I, it's a it's a bad take, Kale. And you know this. You're as deep in the Zach Wilson playbook, as deep in the film as anybody. Now, Maybe the last couple weeks have swung the needle a little bit more in his direction. And he was, by all accounts, the worst quarterback in football last year when he was on the field. But you got to look at it in the context of the whole team. You know, the first thing, if you're doing the Emmanuel Acho take here, you just go, oh, Zach Wilson, 3-10 and 10 last year, 5-1 and one this year. He's the difference. But, I mean, first of all, the one loss, he was absolutely the difference in the opposite direction. If they don't have Zach Wilson, they win that Patriots game. Every other game before the Bills game, you kind of look at it and say this was an inferior opponent. Zach Wilson nearly held them back, especially the games where they had Brees Hall and he was the offense. He's just not, he's not doing anything to push the team in the direction of victory. It's the defense. It's the ground game. It's always something other than Zach Wilson. And I haven't seen a point this season where it's been, all right, he's driving the bus. He's leading the game winning drive. He's the guy moving forward. I don't, I, he, the biggest part of it to me is he commits to him being the guy moving forward, at least in the next year, at least from the quotes perspective. I don't know. They have so much other good talent on that team. Do you really want to make that commitment? Jackson, Jackson, Jackson. <laughs> there hasn't, there are a few people who've watched more Zach Wilson football than I have. Watched every snap of the man in triplicate that he's taken as a professional. Jackson, I'm teetering on calling this. I I can't speak for the future. The second half, prognosticating that he'll be light years ahead next year of where he is now. I can't call that. He's light years ahead of where he is now than he was last year. Jackson, I'm teetering on calling it freezing. (laughs) He's statistically dead on. CPOE from 2021 to 2022, negative 10.3 down to negative 3.6. Adjusted EPA per play drops more than half, minus 0.139, 
to minus 0.055. DYAR is the 16th worst by a rookie quarterback in 2021 with negative 569. DYAR is a cumulative stat. We can't totally pan it out for the rest of the season. But his DYAR is positive right now, Jackson. It's 94. DVOA, negative 32.3%, down to negative 3. His interception rate and his touchdown rate have both gone up by a tenth of a point. Let's call that a wash. His yards per attempt are up 1.1 yards year over year. His net yards per attempt, which factor in yards lost by sacks, is up from 4.6 to 6.21. His QBR is up 20 points year over year, and his sack rate's way down. Plus, you talk about not leading the team. You talk about the anecdotal evidence that he's not making a difference. In half as many games, six games this year to 13 games last year, he's already led as many fourth-quarter comebacks as he did in 2021, and he has twice as many game-winning drives, two to one. Jackson, I get Wilson's penchant for hero ball makes him look like a fool sometimes, and he makes some very stupid, stupid mistakes because he's got that itch in there that he wants to end up on SportsCenter Top 10 every time he touches the ball. And every play has to get salvaged into something. That being said, there are instances where he's learned major lessons. I talk about the Mike White game a lot as a Zach Wilson evaluator. Watching on the sidelines, watching Mike White kill the Bengals with checkdowns, not having an A dot above five and beating the eventual AFC champions outright at home was a big lesson for him. By the time he learned it, when he came back, Elijah Moore was out, Corey Davis was out. He's throwing he's throwing checkdowns to Braxton Berrios and Jamison Crowder. Doesn't have the proper infrastructure around. This year, the game against Buffalo Jackson, he doesn't tre- – like, that's how they beat Buffalo. Is It's just quick pass, mitigation down on the offense, They made any given Sunday this week, and the most fascinating thing I found, Zach Wilson this year has led the league in time to throw with 3.12. In that game, they shaved it down to 2.31. That was the third lowest in week nine of any quarterback play. He's he's learning. He's objectively getting better. And the one thing, he attempted one pass deeper than 20 yards during that game, and it was... In the game script, it was, I think, the second play of the Jets' book. It's a 40-yard shot to Denzel Mims that he gets out with the flick of a wrist, that he gets out like it's nothing, and he dots a diving Denzel Mims. And if he comes down with it, it looks way better, and it's probably one of Wilson's better throws as a quarterback because it looks so clean out the hand. I'm not a Wilson believer in the long term. I think the Jets will be better off with a different quarterback in-house. So there you go. (laughs) That's the whole thing. That being said, you can't deny this level of improvement. He's going from the worst quarterback in the league to, like, cracking top 20, knocking on the door of top 20, just by performance metrics alone. I Here's my thing, though. I think they've child-proofed him. 
And when you have a child-proof quarterback who barely cracks the top 20 with a great scheme around him, who hasn't thrown three touchdowns in a game ever, who only has thrown two touchdowns in a game in a disastrous Patriots loss where he just started throwing stuff downfield and Devin McCourty was just sitting there waiting for it, then you're you're just like you're building an offense where the the ceiling is check down after check down depending on the rush game to stay ahead of the chains and depending on your defense to create turnovers in order to win. Like I don't see that as a like maybe there's some improvement there, but I don't call that light years because I don't think Zach Wilson's a guy who can win you a game, which is ultimately what you're looking for at the quarterback position, is it not? But he's won he's done it he's game winning drives alone, he's done it twice. Two hmm. two in half as many games. I'm not listen, you gotta build a foundation. I think the fact that they've child proofed it in year two, as they start to assemble these offensive pieces, they've also been gutted at the line. This team has been absolutely decimated at the offensive line. So the fact that Wilson's sack percentage is down is very telling of how improved he is as a not only just quarterback, but like an evader of pressure, a guy who can ad-lib a bit. And the ad-libbing stuff, the backyard football stuff, is where is what you drafted him on. That's the ceiling. But to get to that ceiling, you got to start building the floor up a little bit more because the floor was catastrophic. The floor didn't – it was a foundation of sand. You couldn't build anything on it. Getting this small check down stuff in and helping him improve a little bit more, just getting those fundamentals down, then he could start taking the 15-yard shots. Then you could regularly integrate those 40-yard shots into your game. It's, it's a work in progress, at least, at least in the way I see it. It's a work in progress. And like I said, the biggest comparison that I made in the Jets Almanac chapter was Josh Allen. They're neck and neck in DYAR DVOA as rookies. They were catastrophically bad. And this is the kind of improvement you need to make to actually implement that third-year jump, that fourth-year jump. I'm not saying this team has the time for that because I think this team is not only ahead of schedule, it's ready to compete right now if they have a different quarterback, but it's about managing those schedules. It's about trying to figure out where you can fit it in, how you can make Wilson improve more. But doing this against a Buffalo team and seizing that opportunity, Buffalo's given them a ton of cushion. They're going quick. They've got heavy RPO implemented. They've got heavy play action implemented. When this team's at full strength and when Wilson's got a little bit more of this experience under his belt and he knows and has the confidence that he can do the small stuff, then you can start to structurally implement the big stuff that Wilson really wants to go to. And also, going to the small stuff will open up the deeper stuff because you'll have to press down a little bit more. How good a take can this really be if you're saying he's light years ahead of where you thought he would be, but at the same time, or light years ahead of where he was last year and will be light years ahead next year? How can you agree with that but then say they'd be better off with another quarterback? I mean, that's just the last piece of the puzzle here. I don't I don't see a world where, I mean, this guy, he's, he's throwing for maybe 150 yards on average in the games that they win. I don't I don't know how where's where's the missing puzzle piece to the, to think that's the guy who's going to actually elevate your team and win you games starting next year. I'm just saying that the teams are on two different timetables. This is a team that's ready to win now and Zach Wilson is a work in progress quarterback. But there. 
if you're willing to put in the time, if you're willing to wait a year, because a lot of, like DJ Reed on a multi-year contract, Jordan White had multi-year contract. Most of this defensive front that's been prolific is locked up. The linebackers aren't, but that whole defensive front, that whole defensive line is locked up. You got the offensive line relatively tied up, especially in the interior. The backs are good. The wide receivers are locked in. You just signed two tight ends. The entire infrastructure of the team, because they've won now, like because they're at the record they're at, they've picked up some pretty genuine wins at this point. This is a team that if if you plopped in, let's say, Derek Carr, who might become available this offseason, it's a team that would be pretty immediately competitive in the realm of the AFC. And that's just because Derek Carr's more experienced, has the ability to process. And if you're in an offense, it's going to make it as easy as it's making it for Zach Wilson. The guy like Derek Carr has got quick processing, can actually execute this stuff on command, doesn't have to be taught, can win games immediately. Zach Wilson's on a different timetable than the rest of this team. But if you're willing to wait, and if you're willing to establish this baseline, then the ceiling that Zach Wilson can actually achieve with the big scrambling around, the 60-yard throws, the stuff that made him a number two overall pick out of BYU. If you're willing to establish that foundation, that angle is much more easy to achieve. It's the fact that they couldn't do the small stuff that drops these catastrophic DYAR numbers, CPOE numbers, EPA per play numbers in the 10th of a digit. That's what, like, if you're willing to wait, you get the fruit that bears it. Interested to see how that goes, because I think if you're ever arguing that you could take this quarterback out and put Derek Carr in, that your team might be better off, I think you're in a bad spot. But I, I understand where you're coming from. I'm talking short term. Let's well, I think stick. short term matters for them. We'll see. Fair. Let's stick with Robert Sala and talk a little coach of the year. Richard Sherman podcast. Richard Sherman himself lists four candidates for potential coach of the year and does not list the odds-on favorite Nick Sirianni of the Philadelphia Eagles. Let's hear Sherm explain. That, that is not obvious. If it was obvious, I'd give it. But because I want to give it to Salah, I want to give it to Pete, his, his old quality control. <laughs> Pete's old quality control. Salah and Pete um, up there. But Kevin O'Connell, 7-1. and one. You know, you got to put him in the, in the discussion. You got to put Dayball in it. Uh, they're 6-2. and two. Giants are still six and two and, and still competitive in the NFC East. So I, it, there's a lot of great candidates uh, for coach of the year. I selfishly want to give it to Pete or Sala, but Kevin O'Connell is definitely in it. Jackson lists off Robert Sala, lists off Pete Carroll, Kevin O'Connell, Brian Dable. No Nick Sirianni in the mix. Put it on the meter. Wow. I This is an interesting one because I think that for how big a favorite Sirianni is, you'd mention him if you really felt like he was like the guy that was driving the bus there. Like there's a lot of other things that Philly's done over the offseason that have put them in this position. Um, and then I think we knew coach of the year is a weird one, right? Cause it's not just about like how great the team is this year. It's a lot about year over year improvement. I'm going to put this though. I'm going to put this at Cool. Not not freezing, but I, I think there's something to this. It, Sherm, I mean, is as tapped into the league as anybody. He obviously knows Pete Carroll as well as anybody. And I think that the way Coach of the Year voting goes, 
I, I would vote for Nick Sirianni right now, but if Nick Sirianni loses a couple games, I think that undefeated record is what's buoying his favorite status so much. Uh, and if they go 15-2, 14-3, all of a sudden, Pete Carroll, Brian Dable, maybe to a lesser extent, Kevin O'Connell, start to look like the ones who actually deserve the award. Yeah, same ballpark as you. I'd call it, I'm going to flat call it lukewarm because I could kind of see it being a hot take. If you got an undefeated head coach, you're probably getting into the mix of coach of the year. But when you lay it out on paper, Jackson, this team is absolutely more suited for a Howie Roseman executive of the year award. The guys they got in the draft, Landon, A.J. Brown, Landon, you know, James Bradbury, Hassan Reddick, uh, picking up uh, uh, Robert Quinn. Robert Quinn. Quinn. Robert Quinn. Uh, I got that one. Don't worry. Uh, uh, you know, being able being able to re-sign, you know, a Jason Kelsey, who has been awesome this year. Uh, all of these pieces that you've acquired are what is putting out this 8-0 record. You, Nick could go Steichen, you could go Shane Steichen, offensive coordinator, assistant coach of the year, too, I think. That's another big one where he's really dialed up plays this season that have put Jalen Hurts in a position to be the absolute most effective that he can be uh, and will be one of the hottest young head coaching options going into this offseason as well. So that's another potential detractor, which shouldn't detract because it's all one great symphony in Philly. But these are all things that Sirianni has working in his favor that ironically can help him lose a little bit of stock in the award itself. Yeah. So this is a team. Look at the rest of this infrastructure or the other names that he brought up Eagles finished second in the NFC East last year so them going from second to first put the record aside them going from second to first isn't that big of an anomaly the Jets being in a playoff spot is an anomaly <laughs> but Seattle That's Seahawks leading, an anomaly. <laughs> the Seattle Seahawks leading the NFC West is absolutely an anomaly even the Giants overperforming where we all thought the Giants would be, which again speaks to the ease and the lack of difficulty in the 2022 Philadelphia Eagles schedule. Like hats off to Brian Dable for executing not only that with the roster he's given, but also with, you know, wide receiver four and five on their roster, uh, not really having, you know, signing guys off the street to execute. And Kevin O'Connell, I think, is just in there, not only based off record, but nothing has materially changed in Minnesota beyond the head coach. That being said, flipping the switch on a guy like TJ Hawk is impressive, but nothing's materially changed enough for me to, you know, lose my mind about it. Yeah, I'm going to quickly address the Minnesota thing. I mean, they've got six straight one-score wins. Five of them are against teams with losing records, and the six was Miami with their third-string quarterback. I definitely think the vibes have improved a ton in Minnesota, and you and I are big vibes guys, so we know <laughs> we, <laughs> vibes are everything. Uh, there was a, a great side-by-side video of post-win locker room celebrations in Minnesota last year compared to this year, and the vibes are just you know, quintupled. Uh, so there's definitely 
a lot of good things going on in Minnesota right now, but as far as like actually impressing me on a football field, they haven't done as much of that as you'd think a team with seven wins would, and stats bear it out. Uh, but I think, yeah, Seattle, Giants, and uh, Jets are three teams that when we did our preseason prognostications, we had as either last place teams or very close to it. And obviously you were higher on the Jets than most, given the amount of time that you've invested in covering the Jets. So that's credit to you and people who have been around the team who knew that there was something cooking there. But I think from a coach of the year perspective, you want to look at wins above expectation. Those are the three teams right there that have really stepped in and done things that nobody really thought they could. Jackson, as always, we got to put one of our own at Football Outsiders up to scrutiny, up to the test this week. You get back into the well, the takesman himself, Mike Tanier. Yes. Sticking in Seattle, Jackson. He did a little exercise where he fixes all the QB conundrums around the league. He had a special one for Seattle. He really did, Kel. He went out and said, and here's my direct quote, and this is, uh, here's Mike's direct quote. I didn't say this. He says, pay Geno Smith. Specifically, pay him $40 million over two years. You like that, Kelly? He hooks you in, and then he reels you back out. That's a smart price for Smith's services in the wake of his unexpected breakout. Goes on to say, oh, you think Smith deserves a nine-figure contract and a four-plus-year commitment? Easy to be 100% certain that's the correct course of action when it's not your money slash job slash reputation at stake. And then he says, he goes even further, the Seahawks need to think of Smith as, quote, a premium bridge quarterback, and they need to strongly consider dipping into a deep 2023 quarterback draft class, perhaps with that first round of the Denver Broncos traded them. I'm going to flip this one on you first. Seahawks should consider a high draft pick first rounder and not commit to Geno Smith for more than two years. Where are you putting it on the take meter? I'm putting it hot because of just how prolific Geno's been this season. Our own Derek Klassen also put up a film breakdown of Geno where it's not just it's not just an anomaly at this point. We've got a big enough sample size. We've got enough film. Geno Smith has truly been one of the best pocket passers in the league this year. That being said, absolutely, you can't you can't trust it. This is so far from anything that Geno Smith has done in his career that just assuming that this is the new norm cannot you can't you can't assume you can't ride on that you know. I said during the news show, I believe that, or I forget, I forget where we had talked about it, but we're I talking said, a lot of places, Cal. We're, we're here, out of there. We're everywhere. Voice in a lot of ears and a lot of different channels. But I said, absolute floor for Geno Smith next year is 15 million a year. And that's probably being conservative, but it's also recognizing that, hey, this is one year of bordering on elite performance at quarterback. In a down year for quarterback performance, which I do think we should acknowledge. Yes, that is that is actually a great point. I wouldn't have even considered that. I was more hooked on, you can't get enamored with one year when everything else preceding it, maybe it's just not getting a shot, 
maybe it's, you know, Ben McAdoo was able to give him a little bit here. Uh, no one else was really willing to give him some playing time outside of Pete or uh, his one-year stint in L.A. But you can't let this one year represent the norm of the last, what, eight, nine years. You got to play a little bit more conservative, and you got to have a contingency plan. Geno Smith's also old. Older than you'd like him to be for a, you know, not quite generational or, or like era of quarterback. But you're not building anything around a 32-year-old, from scratch at least. So you no. got to have that guy in there. Absolutely. Pay Gino, like, pay Gino what he's worth. Reward him for the deal. But you got to have plan B in there. You got to be building towards something. Yeah, and I think the other good thing Mike does here is points out that like what other team is going to call your blow? You offer Gino, you know, either that two-year, $40 million deal, maybe a one-year for a little higher AAV. Like what general manager is going to go above and beyond that as an offer, given the lack of track record? He lists one and he uh, he says, you know who he is and you know his boss is already firing head coaches and replacing them with former players turned consultants. Wink, wink. We all know what front office we're talking about here. So I don't know. I think I think it's a smart take. I'm going to put it at hot as well, just because I don't know. It sounds right. <laughs> but uh, I, I like that a lot because I think with and here's a here's an interesting case study. You look at Geno's numbers this year. They're a lot like Kirk Cousins last year. And Kirk Cousins has dipped from like the seventh best quarterback by DVOA to 18th this year. So there's nothing in the Geno Smith playbook track record that says that can't happen next year. And as I mentioned, I also think this is a down year for quarterback performance, which you know, great for Geno Smith for rising to the top, but if he was even a few spots lower in some of these, you know, either DVOA or EPA leaderboards, I think we'd be a little bit less inclined to buy him as a long-term solution for Seattle. Last point before we move on, another point that Klassen had made was that these are pretty much similar numbers to what Ryan Tannehill was putting in, putting up in the reclamation year. In Tampa Bay, where he replaces or Tampa Bay in Tennessee, where he replaces Marcus Mariota, love that comparison, and then love gets that hundred eighteen million dollar deal. These contract numbers, Brady's the best quarterback making sub thirty. The floor for a lot of these guys is thirty mil, with Tannehill finishing just under in, in you know average per year. I could see. A Saints team, a team that has a competitive roster, you know, for lack of... Because we know they've got lots of cap, Kale, that they're anxious to spend. Yeah, again, negative 60 mil in cap. Not the best place to start for a 30 mil a year contract. But, you know, even like, and I'm I'm pinching myself saying this after everything I said, Zach Wilson, I don't really mean it, but I'm using it as the best example that comes to mind. But a team like the Jets... A team that is competitive right now, but doesn't have the quarterback play necessary. If they if they were desperate and wanted to go on a short term deal, like those are the guys who would match that two years forty. Those are the guys who would exceed it and take that thirty plus mil a year contract for Gino and go off the one sample size and throw that proverbial hail mary. Gino Smith to the Jets. 
Zach Wilson to the Washington Commanders. Taylor Heineke back to the XFL. Who says that? Who says <laughs> I don't know. Moving on to some fantasy takes. This one comes from Fantasy Flock Network. Guy who I have gotten a lot of fantasy webs, uh, advice from in the past off of YouTube. Appeared in my YouTube shorts. I became a fast fan of his. He went down and ranked all the running backs for the rest of the NFL season. He had a little in some choice words for Aaron Jones. Our next guy, Aaron Jones at 16. The Green Bay Packers, straight up bad. Like, I, I don't really have much faith in the Green Bay Packers turning it around with Aaron Jones as well. This is a running back now dealing with the ankle injury. I know he's back at practice. I know Aaron Jones looks fine. But I see a 27, 28-year-old running back in a bad offense now dealing with an ankle injury. I think there's a red flag there, even though he's clearly a player that has a high ceiling. I mean, we've seen Aaron Jones go out there and be a top three running back in fantasy. I mean, we've seen him go through and have a very large role in this offense this year. I'm just a little, little worried. Now our last Jackson, D tier for Aaron Jones. 16th among current running backs going forward. Put it on the meter. Yeah, you say you've been getting advice from this fantasy flock guy. I'm in now. I think that's great advice. Aaron Jones is 10th among uh, ESPN fantasy running backs in the half-point PPR scoring system, which in my opinion is the superior scoring system. Uh, and I don't see how that improves when everything else around him is crumbling. The Packers are falling deeper into this malaise. They already are going up against the Dallas team this week that I expect to key heavily in on the run and force Aaron Rodgers to make plays to Alan Lazard and whatever else is out there because I don't know if they have any other healthy receivers, Kel. That's a legitimate, like, is Christian Watson ready to go? It doesn't look like it. Is Sammy Watkins ready to go? Whoever knows with him. The Packers offense is in shambles. And as great as Aaron Jones can be, I don't see how he's going to improve his production with everything else crumbling uh, and dropping from 10th to 16th doesn't seem like much. So I'm going to put it, is it cold, cool? Whatever the second one from the bottom is, I lose track sometimes. That's where this one is because it's not going out on much of a limb, but I also agree with it. Jackson, I'm sticking it at cold, but it's also because I've got some choice words to say about it. Oh, Jackson. The path forward for Aaron Jones is through the passing game. Because at this point, Fair. the Green Bay Packers don't trust a lot of their passing offense. <laughs> uh, you know, and even some of their own, even some of those wide receivers that Rodgers doesn't trust have gone back on Rodgers Gordon to report saying that uh, they didn't really appreciate Rodgers throwing them under the bus during preseason. Uh you know, calling him out directly. Aaron's a quirky guy. Aaron's going to go to the guys he trusts. It's why Alan Lazard has such a big chunk of their offense. And even Robert Tanya has a big chunk of their offense. Last three weeks, though, Jackson, according to FantasyData.com, Aaron Jones has a 16.8 target share. That leads the team over the last three games. They're getting a lot more to their running backs and leaning on the guys that they trust. And it helps to supplement the fact that they might not be rushing as much. And this even contains, you know, an Aaron Jones game two weeks prior where, you know, Buffalo 
They lose by 10, but Jones rushes 143 yards on 20 carries. He's doing decently in the rush game, but the Packers don't exactly have the offense to always rush. They've got to be passing. But that production is going to come from the guys they trust, from the guys like Aaron Jones. And in the last couple weeks, we've seen that Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon are going to be getting a lot of work. Because they want to run this through the off, they want to run this through the run game. It's the one thing they're having a monicum of success with. And even in the passing game, Jones and Dylan are both the guys that Rogers trust to get things working, to get things moving. And if they can't even find guys open downfield, they're gonna turn back and go to these running backs in check down, in short yardage situation, picking up chunks, picking up something. I see a path forward. That's all I'm saying. I can see it, but I can also see it the other way. I mean, Aaron Jones has three touchdowns this year, two of them in the Washington game, one in week two against Chicago, which was by far his best fantasy output of the season. Nice that they get to play Chicago again. Always a soft run defense. I thought he was going to have a huge day against Detroit. I even put it in our staff picks article last week. Like he was my guy out of all the fantasy players that I thought was going to have a big week. The furthest thing from it, he only gets five and a half half point PPR points. So what I worry about here is that the Packers continue to get into games where they're behind. And when they're getting anywhere near the red zone, they're still passing. Maybe Aaron Jones still gets some targets. But, you know, when I think about fantasy running backs, I want an offense that's going to be controlling the tempo of the game, getting it down deep in uh, the other team's offensive territory and punching it in on the ground. I mean, that's what I've always loved about Dalvin Cook and the Vikings offense is even when he's not having an efficient day running wise, they get down inside the 10 and all of a sudden they're just they're begging Dalvin to take it in. They give him two tries before they even look at Justin Jefferson or Thielen or whoever. So I, I don't think the the rest of the Packers season is going to much follow that game script. And that's why I'm I'm in most mostly in agreement with our boy at fantasy flock jackson i will add one note that puts a little bit of rain on my parade (laughs) biggest part of them staying in games is getting defensive production and is keeping points low have they done it not only is LaShawn gary done for the year with the acl we knew that quarterback eric stokes might also be done for the year as just broken on my phone Via the Bleacher Report app. Not great. Not, Not great. great. Also, don't forget Aaron Jones dealing with an ankle injury now. I mean, he practiced today. Seems like he's going to play moving forward, at least assuming it doesn't get worse. But, I mean, fantasy production's a fickle thing. One little tweak here and there to an ankle can certainly affect things, too. Jackson, let's keep it in the realm of fantasy. Going over to our guys at Fantasy footballers yeah, this is a big one this is uh this got everyone at the desk of fantasy footballers ears poked up and, and it got me going too so let's see let's see what they've got in store for us this week all right i want to borrow those steel underpants that you wear oh, wear so often get in here brother and uh i'm gonna go with tom brady oh man against the seattle seahawks Whew. <laughs> and I understand. Uh, I brought it up. One touchdown, one touchdown, no touchdowns, one touchdown, one touchdown. I think Brady's due for some positive touchdown regression. Change, he just need a change of environment. 
And I think the ending of the last ball game, I know it seems like a small thing to focus on, but if you saw, it, it was like a load off. He's gone through a lot this year. Um, I think, you know, this 2.5% touchdown rate, you're going to see some bounce back. Seattle's a good enough offense to make this game kind of exciting. I think it's time. I think it's time Godwin get. You know what? Oh, no. Oh, oh. oh. Hey, it's, are a, you? it's a Godwin touchdown guarantee. Oh. Chris Godwin, zero touchdowns this season in seven games. Tom Brady, only 10 touchdowns in nine games. Where are you putting it on the take meter? Tom Brady breaks out of his fantasy lull, and Chris Godwin catches a touchdown against the Seahawks. Jackson, this is blazing hot. This is <laughs> scorching. Not only is it scorching for, you know, Babe Ruth calling her shot at the plate that the touchdownless Chris Godwin is going to grab a score this week. It's just not, it's not the week for it, Jackson. It's it's not it's it's not the week for it. I I said it in the staff picks, which by the way, highly recommend you reading. It's my favorite piece to write up every week. Mine too. We've we've all got a lot of good info in there. I think the fans love it as well. The readers over at FO. Highly recommend you checking it out. I said it. Brady got bailed. Brady bailed out the rest of the Buccaneers last week. I don't think it's that big of an exaggeration to say that. Against, by DVOA standards, a bad Los Angeles Rams passing offense. Guys that didn't know how to defend the sidelines. Was able to drive down the field, put up a game winner in typical Tom Brady fashion. That game also saw the lowest intended air yards per pass attempt of the season for the Buccaneers. And that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing, especially for a guy like Godwin, who's slotty, who can get over the middle stuff. But you're not getting break-off touchdowns that way. You're not doing a lot of that. And with that He's looking said, for other guys down there, too. He's looking for Evans always, of course. He's looking for Kate Otten a lot down there in the red zone now, too. The Bucks are always they're always looking for excuses to give Leonard Fournette empty stats that goose his uh, you know the justification in his contract or whatever. I just don't see the opportunity there for Godwin these days. He's not a vestige of the red zone offense like he maybe has been in previous years. Listen, that being said, there is a path forward. If Brady's going to run check down City and he's just going to dink and dunk over the middle and dink you to death, Seattle Seahawks. 24th in defensive DVOA on short passes. Their strength is more so the deep ball. 15th in defensive DVOA against deep pass. And you figure Tariq Woolen probably shadowing Mike Evans in this game so that you might get some some Godwin versus Kobe Bryant, no relation, one-on-ones as well. We'll see how it goes. Listen, I like being bold and brash here. It's bold. It's bold. It, it is scorching hot. I'm right there with you. Slide whistle, please. It's it's there, but I, I, I see the vision. I do. Let's move over to our picks. The Bet On It podcast. Joe Ranieri. You know, I've got I've got a I've got a spoiler alert for you. This is a pick that I 
am in lockstep with this week. So let's listen to it and let's see where you're at. I got to tell you, this Miami team uh, down here, oh boy, it's Dan Marino who? Um, it is ridiculous how much smoke and how much excitement they've got going on down here thinking this team is just absolutely going to drop 70 points on everybody. Not so fast here. I think that's a great opportunity uh, for Cleveland, who's had a little extra time here. We just watched them, what, beat up uh, a pretty good Cincinnati team who showed that, yep, uh, maybe this Cleveland team has actually turned a corner. We know they can run the ball. We know they can hold uh, time of possession. Uh, they've had a little time to get, uh, to get healthy here. I got no problem at all taking the hook here. What I think is going to be a close one-score game. Joe Ranieri, if you win this bet, please buy a new mic. <laughs> Regardless of the way the take was delivered, and by the way, Joe Ranieri, all the energy you could ask for from a host. Unreal. I want to go to dinner with that guy and talk picks sometime. But, Kale, you like Cleveland this week? Do you buy into the logic? Where's this on the take meter? It's hot. It's hot. I like it. I like the logic of it at the very least. Talking about that Cincinnati team, I'll admit, Miami's got a bit of a better defense situationally right now than that Cincinnati team does. They were pretty banged up in the secondary, even more so now. But the strength of this Miami defense is its run game, is its ability to stop the run seven in defensive rushing DVOA. And we all kind of know what Cleveland's strength is as an offense. With Jacoby Brissett and really two wide receivers to speak of and, and a good tight end. But we know that the strength of this team is its run game. I actually am very surprised just looking at this that the Cleveland Browns are eighth in passing DVOA. That's kind weird, of right? It's really weird. They're fifth in offensive DVOA, Kale. And they're re- they're second, but they're really in a virtual tie for first with Baltimore in rushing DVOA. So literally the same. strength on strength. I like taking the offensive strength versus the defensive strength. I'm I'm riding with this pick. I really am. If we're flipping it on its head here, Cleveland is banged up at secondary. Let's see where. You know, a Denzel Ward is in this game after the bye. I know they just I know they just played a Cincinnati Bengals team and admittedly didn't have Jamar Chase, but still has, you know, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd. That being said, they have not faced an offense on their schedule, period, quite like this. They haven't faced a wide receiver like Tyreek Hill. They have not faced a wide receiver like Jalen Love. Even in that Chargers game. Just because of what Joe Lombardi's doing, as we already talked about, it's not quite the same. I still like Miami a lot. I don't hate I don't hate them covering. But if it gets out of hand, sorry, it could get very out of hand. It could get very out of hand for Miami. I like the logic though. It's hot, but I like the logic. Yeah, I'm I'm first of all, for the for the purposes of the take scale, it's hot. It's, it's bordering on blazing, but I'm going to keep it in hot. I think, here's why I like this a lot. First of all, Cleveland's defense not necessarily performing up to what you would say like their highest capability is. But I think 
in terms of bothering Tua, in terms of getting them out of rhythm, there are very few people in the league like Miles Garrett who can do that single-handedly. And he's he's there. He's ready to rock. Second of all, I think in order to beat a team like Miami, you have to be able to control the pace of the game. Like, that's just the number one thing you have to do. Keep the ball for as long as possible. Keep it out of the hands of the explosive play offense. Ironically, the team that's done that the best so far this year is the Bills, who still lost that game despite having the ball for 40 minutes and putting up 500 yards of offense. But I think the Cleveland has that blueprint. I think they can run the ball effectively enough, despite the fact that the Miami defense is stronger against the rush. I think Amari Cooper has been good enough for two or three big plays a game lately. Jacoby Brissett, surprisingly competent. Again, you look at quarterback play this year, across the board, it's down. Suddenly, Jacoby Brissett doesn't look so bad. So I I see the vision. I I picked this as my upset of the week, too, in the Staff Picks article. These These are the reasons I have set forth. I think it can happen. Well, Jackson, that ties us right into the end of our show. We put ourselves up to scrutiny. We can't be the arbiter and the judge of takes if we don't leave ourselves vulnerable to get picked apart ourselves. So now it's time to put one of our own takes forward. I'll kick it off with what I think is probably the hottest take I've had. Maybe of the season, but definitely of the last three weeks since we last filmed the takeaway. Week eight eight staff pick, Colin. Our little bonus prompt at the end is laid out like this. Buffalo, Kansas City, Philadelphia. Any order, top three teams pretty unanimously around the league. Using the Vegas consensus lines from week eight, who's got the best value to be the fourth most likely team to win a Super Bowl? So I'm also measuring value against perceived value against potential. My answer, we had a lot of Cowboys. We had some Ravens. And Seattle Seahawks. Geno Smith playing like a top five quarterback in the league. Up to that point, the Seattle Seahawks defense was second best in the league over the last four weeks. The sample size is large enough to start to prove that this is a drastically improved defense, a genuinely good playing quarterback, as we've already talked about. Kenneth Walker has fit in seamlessly for Rashad Penny. This draft class has completely changed the Seattle Seahawks offensive line. They've now got two stalwart tackles leading the way for them on the edge. And DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett are both having pretty great seasons. I had him plus 5,900. That has already fallen tremendously. So measuring the value against potential is one thing that helps factor the decision. But that being said, a top five quarterback with a great defense and a borderline top 10 offense sitting right on the cusp, that's a recipe for a Super Bowl team, in my eyes. It's a great defense, Kale? You just say that flippantly as if it's fact? They're true. Listen, after a bad listen, after a bad start and four really good weeks, five you count last week, they're now twelfth in the league in defensive DVOA. It's a top ten better. It's a top ten offense and a borderline top ten defense. And that's considering how middling this defense was in the first four weeks of the season. So yeah, 
It's a good defense, bordered on a very good defense. Great might have been yeah. a little flippant. I mean, here's the thing, Kel, and I, I hate to do this every time you go on a pro Seahawks rant. They have yet to beat a team in the DVOA column more impressive than Let's Ride himself, Russell Wilson, and the Denver Broncos. So that's going to be my barometer. Hey, I'm ready to jump in on the Seahawks, not like as a Super Bowl contender, but like I'll be accepting of them as a playoff team and very plausible NFC West division winner if they can beat Tampa this week. Because I don't think, I, I, I genuinely don't think they've gotten a win this season. Even that Giants win, which was a fairly dominant win from a, a yardage perspective, the Giants shot themselves in the foot too many times over for me to really trust it. If they can take down Tampa this week as underdogs, which they keep winning as underdogs because nobody believes in them and Arizona's terrible and I bought that line last week and I kicked myself for it. That will be the moment where I start to believe in them, but I still am not there because you can't, like, you've been very flippant about saying that the Seahawks actually can win the Super Bowl. Not just that they have, oh, 5,900, great number. Can the Seahawks win the Super Bowl? I don't see it. They have the fourth best chance to win the Super Bowl and they have the second best chance in the N NFC. And also, my biggest comparison, I I'm going to leave it here. My biggest comparison in the article was last year's AFC champion, the Cincinnati Bengals. Seahawks are in a tougher conference given, given the complete implosion of the AFC North last year with injury. Baltimore sets a record-setting uh, record for adjusted games lost. Steelers are very banged up. Uh, Browns completely fall apart. It's a good NFC West. It's competitive. Cardinals aren't who we thought they'd be. Rams aren't necessarily who they thought we'd be. But talent-wise, it's there. This team is performing better in both offensive DVOA and defensive DVOA through this point of the season. And has had a marginally, marginally tougher schedule than what the Bengals had last year. Doesn't take a lot for the path to open up in the playoffs. And then by the time you hit the Super Bowl, it's basically a coin flip. That's my logic. Just to refute some of that logic, very briefly, the Cincinnati Bengals had one of the most fortunate, lucky roads to a Super Bowl that I can remember in barely taking down the Raiders who shot themselves in the foot on first and goal by calling an unnecessary timeout. They barely beat the Titans with a banged up Derrick Henry who were the worst one seed by DVOA in the history of one seeds. And then they take down Kansas City after a historic second half collapse from what was a three score game. And then after all that broke their way, they still couldn't cash in the bet by actually winning the Super Bowl. Um, and they sort of took a little bit of their own pill by shooting themselves in the foot in the second half against the Rams. So all that had to break right for that Bengals team. You're in a completely different scenario with Seattle, and none of that is guaranteed. Also, Cincinnati had more impressive regular season wins last year that let you know they were capable of beating those top-tier teams than Seattle has so far. So maybe the aggregate stats are a little more in the Seahawks' favor this year, but not only did I trust the Bengals more last year going into the playoffs than I currently do the Seahawks, they had everything break their way. Hey, all I heard is... They beat the Chiefs, and the Seahawks would have to probably beat the Eagles to get to the Super Bowl. And then they lost the Super Bowl coin flip. That's all I heard. That's all I heard. Put your take up to scrutiny, Jackson. Super Bowl coin flip. I love it. Let's let's not even do Super Bowl picks this year because we all know it's just a coin flip now. 
My take. I think now this is a value argument again, because I don't necessarily think it's going to happen. But I think if you bet this, there's good value there. You know how the Eagles are undefeated, Kale? They got some tough games coming up. That Dallas Cowboys team is 440 plus 440 to win the NFC East right now. They are two games back. They do have the tiebreaker against them, but they have another game against the Eagles coming up. It's in Dallas. They win that game. The tiebreaker's a wash. You have to make up one more game somewhere along the line. These two teams have the 28th and 29th ranked future schedules. So both have a bit of a cakewalk moving forward. But let's examine the Eagles a little bit here, Kale. 27th ranked rush defense right now per DVOA. Who do they go up against in future weeks after dealing with Washington this week? Oh, just the teams that have Jonathan Taylor, Aaron Jones, Derrick Henry, Saquon Barkley, and even the Bears got a little Khalil Herbert, David Montgomery, and Justin Fields, of course, thing going on in the ground game. The recipe is there to beat this Eagles team. It's pound it, control the clock, keep the ball out of Shane Steichen's little, little grubby hands. And I think, I really believe in this Dallas team because of the star power on defense and because I really trust Dak's steady hand at quarterback. I really think if Dallas... Keeps, keeps from stumbling, maybe loses one more game along the way and beats the Eagles that second time around. I think Dallas at 14-3 can very much win that division, and I like the plus 440 odds. I like the odds. I like, I like the logic. I like the odds. There are too many frisky teams in there for me to get worried about on Dallas. Like, Dallas has to play Minnesota. Love it. Philadelphia doesn't they get an extra game at home against washington dallas has to go to road against washington to close their season out and we know how seasons end in washington so way seasons start for a team like the patriots in miami or the bills uh you know i'm more making a reference to the uh eagles little playoff collapse a year or two ago the, well, are we talking about that, or are we talking about the game where Doug Peterson tanked against Washington and then still be fired I'm anyway? talking about the game where Doug Peterson acted. Yeah. Was it Peterson? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, listen, I get it. I don't think you, I don't think you can mention Jonathan Taylor as like a big threat to stop the Eagles when he has been one of the worst running backs in football this year. And it's, it's been constantly It's still in there. I know the Jeff Saturday thing has has swayed me in the direction of not thinking they can win that game. But, you know, it's Jonathan Taylor. you got to put some respect on his name when he wins Offensive Player of the Year just last year. Jackson, that that respect gets very, very diluted when the following year they put up the worst rushing DVOA in the league. It's been bad. I'm not disputing it. But for one game, you don't think Jonathan Taylor can go sicko mode, Kale, for one game? I don't. I genuinely don't. Uh, ha- having Green Bay and Tennessee at home helps. That three, where I see it maybe happening for you, Jackson, is that three-game road stretch late in the season at New York, at Chicago, at Dallas. If this bet's going to cash, it happens in that week. That's where I see it happening. I can that's, see it. That's even where I see maybe Sirianni coming off the Coach of the Year train. That same, dude, you're selling me. Dallas all it is, takes, 
All it takes is that Tennessee game. We saw them almost do it to Kansas City on the road. Ryan Tannehill's going to be back for that game. Derrick Henry goes crazy. All of a sudden, this division looks real tight. Last last thing I'll bring up is that to end Dallas's season, especially heading into that Philly game, which is at home in Dallas, by the way, they've got a they've got a runway of home against Indy, home against Houston at Jacksonville. That's money. Then they gotta then you gotta worry about closing at uh, at Tennessee at Washington, but it's a lot closer than I thought it'd be, Jackson. I'm not gonna totally dissuade you. I like this. Like, I, if you just said gun to head right now, who's winning this division? I'd still go Philly, but four to one, four and a half to one, really? Sure. I, Dallas to go undefeated much more, or Dallas to win the division much more likely than Philly to go undefeated. I don't think that's a conversation at all. Listen, if I can find a path for the Seattle Seahawks to win the Super Bowl, <laughs> we can both find a path for Dallas to win the NFC East. That'll do it for us this week. On the takeaway, thank you all for listening. Highly recommend you check out all the sources that we shouted out in the video who help foster this take landscape. All the links will be in the description below. Make sure to subscribe over on the FO YouTube and the FO Podcast Network, wherever you get your podcast. Want to also thank our sponsor of the show, underdog fantasy use that promo code outsiders to match any first time deposit up to 100 dollars. jackson pleasure being back with you happy to be doing this show again the best to the fans at home underdog woof woof ah oh, what a what a week it's been what a three weeks it's been for the take landscape couldn't be more happy that this show is back in our lives. It will continue to be in our lives. It's a good time. Football take culture, it's unmatched. It's unparalleled. There's the NBA with its, you know, crazy Twitter landscape and, and you know, hot take artists. There's baseball with goodness knows what hot takes you can make up about that sport, even though I live in it every day at MLB Network. But football takes are just, there's something special about them. There's something so special, and I'm so glad that we get to be the ones to break him down. What a beautiful note to end on, Jackson. For Jackson, I'm Kale. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week.